Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Proverbs as we continue in on our series. We're going to be again in Proverbs 17 this morning. As you're turning there, my name is Trey Corey. I haven't had the chance to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's a joy to get to fill in for Jacob as we continue on through the series of the book of Proverbs. As you're finding Proverbs 17, I'll kind of open up with, there was a series back in the early 2000s that dominated much of the spy genre of entertainment. It was before Ethan Hunt and Mission Impossible had really grabbed our hearts and minds, and it was a show called 24. Uh, some of you may remember it. Some of you may know it. It was not a restful show. It was not an easygoing show. It was an incredibly highly stressful show. And when Jack Bauer, also some referred to this show as the Jack Bauer Power Hour, would often be trying to save the world. And I bring up the show because for some of y'all who may remember it or know it, it was a, every season had 24 episodes. Each episode was uh, uh, one hour. And so a season would go through 24 hours of real time. And honestly, for us, one of the reasons why I remember the show is we had neighbors in Dallas when I was in seminary who had a very odd way of watching a season. Back in the early 2000s, many of you may not realize this, but back in the early 2000s, they would drop a new episode every week, and so you'd have to wait week after week for a new episode. I know that's shocking and depressing. It was for us as well. Uh, but they would, uh, these neighbors would basically wait until the season was totally over, all 24 episodes were out, and then they would proceed to watch a season of 24 in real time over 24 hours. And so we would see them on Friday night. They had worked a long week of work. They were tired. They wanted to unwind and rest by watching a season of 24 in real time. And so I was always oddly fascinated by their ritual. And so what I would try to do is I would try to see them at some point Friday night. We'd bring dinner by. We'd try to swing by, drop off something. And then I would find some odd reason to show back up Saturday night. I just wanted to see the before and I wanted to see the after and it was always startling because you'd see them kind of normally tired after a work week, but kind of excited with anticipation. But by Saturday night, about 7 p.m., the before after was stark because you'd see this couple now with bloodshot eyes, hair that was just crazy. And if I were a doctor and I could have taken their heartbeat and their pulse, their heart rates were elevated. If I were a counselor and I could have kind of dive in, dove a little bit into their internal makeup, I can guarantee you every relationship in their life they thought was probably paranoid that they, either those people were trying to get them or those people were gonna die within 24 hours, all right? So everything that you would hope for a weekend of rest by the time Saturday night had come, they were exhausted, they were stressed out, they were completely overwhelmed and utterly paranoid about the entire world scene, okay? Why do I bring that up? Uh, we used to make fun of these neighbors because their idea of rest was incredibly odd to us. That however they wanted to rest and unwind didn't seem like what most normal people would do. I bring it up because really as we're going to spend the morning talking about rest, I think many of us value and love the idea of rest, but we have very odd ways of going about pursuing it, seeking it out, and experiencing it. For many of us, we kind of fall on two ends of the spectrum, I would submit. For many of us, you're the type of person who can't sit, who can't rest, who can't stop. You're just kind of a go, 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 all the time kind of person. Some of us more like myself are more on the other end of the spectrum that have no problem stopping, no problem sitting, no problem with a little bit of TV, but that little bit of TV goes a lot longer like my neighbors, right? Uh, and we're those people that show up at some point and Netflix says, are you still watching? And we're just utterly offended, right? You're like, how could you ask such a question, right? For some of us, we, we rest, but we go to an extreme and we find ourselves all the more tired, all the more exhausted, wondering why it's not restful at all. 
For many of us, what I wanna do as we talk about the topic of rest is I wanna answer three basic questions as we're all looking for us. And simply, the questions are these. Why don't we rest? What is rest and how do we rest? I love Proverbs chapter 17, verse one, that says this. Trey read it for us already this morning, but Solomon says this in Proverbs chapter 17, verse one, about rest. He says, it's better, better is a dry crust of bread where there is quietness than a house full of strife. Solomon is highlighting two different kinds of homes, one in which there is only but a dry crust of bread, but there is quietness or security or peace or rest. And a house in which there's feasting, there's great provision and abundance, but there's stress, chaos, and strife or no rest. What Solomon's trying to say is that in these two homes, it's better to have a poverty with peace or rest than it is to have prosperity with no peace and no rest. What Solomon is doing for us is, I think, something that resonates for us, that there is a value that we all have for rest. But the problem for many of us is not a value set about rest, but it's our view towards rest. We don't understand what rest actually is. We don't understand how to pursue it, how to experience it. And we're so confused when we can't find rest or ever experience it. What I wanna do this morning is kind of unpack a little bit of that for us to kind of wrestle with. When we can't understand what rest is or how to experience it, what's at stake? What are we losing when we can't build in healthy rhythms of work and rest? I wanna help define for you what rest actually is, biblically speaking. And then thirdly, I wanna kind of help give us some practical tips for how can we build rest in in a more healthy balance and cycle in our lives. The irony is, as we kind of walk through it, I'm gonna give you two different books that I think are incredible resources on the topic. The first is a book called uh, The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan, and the second is a book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, particularly, Buchanan's Rest of God is gonna be a lot of the material by which I'm gonna frame some of this message this morning. And so if you're looking for another good read before summer's over, you're trying to hit some poolside time and wanna kind of read and unwind, great book, Thinking About Sabbath and Rest. Comer's book is a little bit more extreme, a little bit more challenging, a little bit more recent as well, uh, and both kind of paired together are great resources that we think about this topic of rest that I'm gonna try to guide us through this morning. The irony is, as we kind of wrap up our proverb series, is that there's only one proverb, one verse in the whole book of Proverbs about rest in a godly, kind of biblically designed manner for us to look at. And so really, we're gonna kind of hit that passage and then we're gonna really spend most of the time outside of the book of Proverbs this morning because here's why. As Solomon writes the book of Proverbs, Solomon to me is writing to his sons and it feels a little bit like what's happening in our home as we hit August. There's no point in time in our home throughout the course of summer that I need to say to my kids, hey kids, take it easy, unwind a little bit. Maybe you should watch a show at some point today. Maybe you should play a little bit of video game today. At some point in August, as it's gotten crazy hot, the amount of screen time, the amount of unwinding, the amount of rest that's going on in our home is way past probably a moderate balance sense. Most of our conversations in our house are, hey, you lazy sluggard, let's do something today, right? Let's sweat a little bit, let's learn something, let's do something intentional, let's be social and get with some friends. Let's, let's be purposeful here, all right? A little bit of some of the dialogue of our, in our home throughout the summer is a little bit of what I think we see through the book of Proverbs, which is don't be lazy. But what I wanna do this morning as we think about rest is that's one element where some of us need to hear. But by and large, I think the rest of us need to hear something more broadly, that there's a biblically divine and, and designed sense of how God's created rest and how he's invited us into it. And what I wanna do this morning is kind of unpack that for us as we kind of jump in and as we wrestle with this topic of rest. But first, why don't we rest? Why is it we so struggle to rest? I love Buchanan when he says this, thinking about the topic of rest, he says, 
In our culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is considered sloth. But by and large, as we think about our culture today and a lot of the messaging and a lot of the value set, there's a sense in which busyness is a badge that we're to wear. And if I can show that I'm more busy than you, then I feel like I'm more valuable, more worthwhile than you are. That it's almost as if our busyness is a barometer to our significance, our worth. And so as someone's complaining about how busy we, they are, there's an internal sense in which I pop up and go, oh man, I'm so sorry about that. And I totally get it. And now I'm gonna show you that I'm more busy than you, right? And we do this in some kind of quasi weird competitive way talking about busyness which is incredibly different because as we think about the scriptures, what we're gonna see uh, even from Jesus in the gospels is that he's going to talk about rest as something that has been created and that we are being invited into. Notice Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says this. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this passage in Matthew chapter 11 because here in the flow of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Davidic king, the one who's going to come and fulfill all the biblical covenants, all the biblical promises, and is going to establish his kingdom on earth for all nations. And in the midst of that presentation of himself and the invitation for the nation to receive him as king, in the midst of that very moment, what is he offering? Rest saying that his kingdom is going to be unlike the kingdoms that they know, that his reign and his rule is going to be unlike every other human authority that they've ever experienced, and it's going to be different, that something else is going to be possible and permissible that they're not used to and that they haven't seen. Jesus goes on further in Mark chapter two, speaking of this idea of Sabbath, a concept that we'll unpack in the Old Testament. He says, the Sabbath was made for man and man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Matthew 11, we get the topic of rest. Mark 2, we get the idea and the concept of Sabbath here. We're gonna unpack that a little bit in the Old Testament and the pattern that we see that's described beginning in Genesis a little bit later on. But what I want you to see is that in the midst of our own, in a sense, tendency toward hurry and haste and busyness, Jesus is offering us something incredibly different. And so as we struggle to find rest, the issue is not with what Jesus is offering if we have a relationship with him, The issue is with us. There's something about the way that we navigate life. There's something about the way that we take on commitments, responsibilities, and navigate through the natural designs of life in which we are missing rest because of something that's wrong with us. But for you to get your attention a little bit further, I want you to see exactly when we miss rest, we'll address why that's going on in this in a little bit, but when we miss rest, when we can't build in rest in our lives, what's at stake? What do we lose? I wanna show you three things that are at stake that when you and I cannot build healthy rhythms of rest and work that's at stake in our lives that are jeopardized. The first is this, that when you and I can't rest, we lose time. I love the way that Buchanan says it here. He says that all that hurry has gotten me no further ahead, it's actually set me back. It's only diminished me and my efforts to gain time have only lost it. We often see time as some kind of asset that we manage and that we control that we're trying to make more and more efficient as if we can get more and more time, the more efficient we can get. And so we try to manage time and we end up over-managing time. Analogies provided at times, thinking about time as if it's a flower that we're holding, but we end up holding it so tightly we crush it. 
Some of you this afternoon, because you're crazy and you do H-E-B on a Sunday afternoon, end up at the grocery store, and because you didn't plan well, you're actually getting your own groceries and not having delivered to you in the parking lot. For those of us that are like myself that are in the store, what do you do at the very end of it, right? You show up to check out, and what do you do? Which of these registers will go fastest, right? And you make a tactical decision. But what inevitably happens every single time? You chose poorly, right? And so you get in a line, and the line next to you starts to move way faster than your line, and so what do you consider doing? Skipping lines, right? And the moment you skip lines and you get in that line, what ends up happening? That one slows down. And what happens in your heart? Death, right? <laughs> Anger, right? And if it's not the grocery store, it's traffic and it's, and it's transportation, so you're on the highway and your lane is backed up in traffic, so you slide over to the other lane because it was moving faster, but what happens the moment you get into that lane? slows down, and what happens in your heart? Death, right? Just utter anger that you cannot control life, and it does not go the way that you want. Because at its very outset, what we want to do is manage time so that we can get as much of it as we want, and we overmanage it, and what Buchanan is saying is that somehow we go about it in such a way that we end up losing time, not gaining it. It's not just time that we lose, but it's also passion, that there's something that happens to our very heart because of the way that we navigate through busyness, hurry, and haste. Buchanan says it this way. He says, how much do you care about the things that you care about when you become busy? Busyness makes us stop caring about the things that we care about, and busyness literally kills the heart. What Buchanan is trying to highlight is that when you and I become so busy that hurry and haste spins us in such a way that we no longer end up caring about the very things our heart cares most about. We end up missing the things that matter most to us. It's as if our heart becomes eroded and we lose ground for the very things that we're the most passionate about. The Chinese language goes even further to say that it's not just that busyness kills the heart. They actually depict the word busyness in Chinese to show that it literally is a killing of the heart. I love the Chinese language. Notice what they do here. The Chinese language is not an alphabetical one, but they're all character-based ones. And in the word for busyness is this top character that says mong in Chinese. But it's a combination of two different characters that you see in the bottom, one for heart and one for death. Then the Chinese language, you don't have to remember the character, but the point is this, right? That they recognize that there's something about busyness that for every single one of us leads to a killing of the heart. Stress, high blood pressure, but even more so, what Buchanan's trying to hit at is the idea that when you and I become so busy that we cannot control it and it overtakes us, the very things that we care about, the very passions that we have become gutted. We no longer care about the things that we care most about. John Mark Comer goes even further and he says it this way, and this one resonates for me especially. He says this, hurry and love are incompatible. All of my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I am in a hurry, late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day. I ooze anger, tension, and a critical nagging, the antithesis of love. Comer goes even further to say, it's not just that busyness kills the heart, but busyness is antithetical to love. You, you can't have both of these together. You cannot do both of them well. You'll do one or the other. Some of you are Enneagram people, uh, some of you who know Enneagram well, I'm an Enneagram 3, which means I want to get as much done as I possibly can get done in any actual day, all right? So I have an endless to-do list, and for me, a day feels great if I've crossed off all the things I want to do. This afternoon, I'm trying to paint three rooms in my home. I'm going to feel great about my day if I've actually gotten all those rooms painted. If I haven't gotten them all painted, I'm going to feel a sense of dissatisfaction and emptiness 
because there's something wrong with me, all right? Enneagram three, all right? Uh, I'm a list checker, I'm a list maker and doer, and there's something that feels great about getting it through. There was some point in the past that I thought what would be great is if I could ever get my email inbox to zero. I'm way past that point, that's just highly unreasonable. But my wife will have about 20,000 unchecked emails or text messages at any given time. I don't get it, I don't understand it, all right? But she can linger and is not stressed about getting everything done. I love what Cummer says, basically that busyness is antithetical to the love, that if you're driven and driven and driven to do, to do, to do, to accomplish, to keep going and getting as much done as you possibly can get done, it puts you in a disposition that's often contrary to love. Stories told of a chair upholstery business that made their entire business off of cardiologist offices. The only place they went to get customers was to cardiologist offices, and what they would do is they would change the fabric over the chairs in cardiologist offices. And here's why, and here's what Buchanan says, thinking of the story, he says it this way, I think it's fascinating. He says, apparently heart patients are so impatient that even while listening to their doctor's life-threatening diagnosis and life-saving prescription, they sit taut and restless, poised to flee, chafing at the delay. At the edge of their seats, and the very reason their hearts are so sick is written in that threadbare upholstery. But even biologically, even physically, something manifests itself in the midst of our hurry and haste that wears chair fabric out. That when you and I are so consumed by busyness, when it so disorients us and spins us up in a hurry and a haste, we no longer manage time well, we lose time, we lose passion, and lastly, we lose perspective. There's something about hurry, there's something about busyness that spins us, disorients us, so we no longer see as we're supposed to see. We don't see ourselves correctly, we don't see the Lord correctly, we don't see the world correctly. Buchanan puts it this way, thinking about our loss of perspective because of busyness, and he says this, the worst hallucination busyness conjures is the conviction that I am God. That all depends on me and how will the right things happen at the right time if I'm not pushing and pulling and watching and worrying. I love that idea. And what he's, driving, what he's trying to drive to is that busyness begins to create a lie in our hearts in which we think that we are absolutely indispensable to what's happening in the world. And the only way the things that are gonna happen in the world that we're dreaming about, praying about, are is if we keep driving and driving and driving. And all of a sudden, there becomes this tension between our sense of our indispensability and our belief in the sovereignty of God. The busyness and hurry and haste spins us and drives us in such a manner that all of a sudden we begin to believe that there's an absolute indispensability about our lives. And it's in a direct assault to our belief on the sovereignty of God. God cannot be sovereign and we believe that we are utterly indispensable to his plans. Those both cannot be true. And this issue of work, this issue of rest is beginning to highlight for us as we think about it and the fact that we can't find it or experience it, it begins to surface for us not just the fact that we cannot manage time, not just the fact that we lose passion and the very things that drive our heart, but thirdly, we lose perspective. Understanding that we are dispensable, understanding that our God is sovereign and that busyness, hurry, and haste spins us in such a way that we no longer see ourselves correctly, we no longer see the Lord correctly, and we no longer see the world correctly. This idea of rest isn't just a neutral one. It's a significant one with major things that are at stake if you and I can't learn a healthy balance and a healthy rhythm between work and rest. 
So the problem is, for many of us, it's not just that uh, these things are at stake, but for many of us, the reason why we don't rest and can't find and experience rest is because we actually don't have a great proper definition of what rest actually is. So what I wanna do for us is kind of give us a definition of what rest actually is and begin to think through, well, why don't we rest? And maybe it's because we don't know what rest looks like. So how would you define rest? Many of us define it in a series of ways often connected to leisure or chilling out or unwinding, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But ultimately, as we look at the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, one of the first things that we see is that rest is a command to imitate a pattern that God first established. That what rest is at its very definitional sense is a command, a mandate to imitate a pattern that God first modeled for us. Exodus chapter 20, speaking of Sabbath, takes us back and references back to Genesis and what God did at the beginning. Notice what Exodus 20 tells us, speaking of Sabbath and the command for Sabbath. It says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the day of the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. As we talk about rest and as we talk about Sabbath, the first thing that we're going to see as we're called into it is that it's something God first did for us. And so it becomes a pattern that we see in him that we're to mimic and that we're to imitate. What's fascinating about that pattern is as you look back at Genesis is you see the first relationship between work and rest. God was the first to work, and then he extends that work, that mandate to humanity. And if, if he was to do it, then it had an incredibly exalted inauguration that it couldn't have had a better first modeling than God himself who was creating, speaking, forming, shaping, cultivating the natural order. That task, that great calling, he then hands to man, and Adam and Eve follow behind in all of humanity into the great calling and the task of work. Similarly speaking, what we see from Genesis as it comes in highlighted here in Exodus is that it's not just that God worked, but God rested. And that rhythm and that pattern of work and rest is one that is both invited for man to step into. That we're to also work and to rest. And that there's a rhythm and there's a balance between them. And so for the nation of Israel, as God was calling them to Sabbath, he was calling them into a model and a rhythm that the creator God first modeled for them. And if you think about it, think about the fact, when was the nation of Israel being called into this? It was as they were coming out of Egypt where they had been what for 300, 400 years? Slaves. They hadn't known rest at all. It was, rest was not something they had ever experienced. And so God is having to recreate for them a new pattern that they were to walk in that they hadn't known for the last millennia or for the last hundreds of years. And so as he rebuilds it, he's going to rebuild it based off of a pattern that he himself modeled for them that they were to step into and that they were to experience. And what we begin to see as they step into this model that they were to experience and follow suit is that it is basically two kinds of activities, and this is where we often get it wrong. As they were to model Sabbath, they were to basically, there was a kind of engagement and there was a kind of disengagement that they were to model and what they had seen God do. That for six days, God was engaged in a certain kind of way, but on the seventh day, God disengaged from what he had been engaged with. And as he disengaged from what he had been engaged with, then he engaged in a new and a different kind of way than he had been doing the previous six days. That as we think about Sabbath, as we think about rest, it's a, both a kind of engagement and it's a kind of disengagement. 
And one of the reasons I'd submit that you and I struggle to find rest on a consistent basis is because we border on one or the other. But we think it's only disengagement or we think it's only a kind of engagement. Or we engage on the wrong things and we disengage on the wrong things. That we get this pattern wrong because we're often engaging or disengaging on the wrong things in the wrong kinds of ways or the wrong extent and the wrong timing. So I kind of want to unpack for us and kind of help redefine for us as we think about Sabbath, and we think about rest, beginning to see that it's not just a pattern that we're imitating that we saw God do, who, by the way, wasn't tired after six days of work, but he rested nonetheless because there was something divine and healthy in that rhythm, even if one was not weary from the six days of work. And so as we begin to look at this, Buchanan's gonna help us define it, and he says it this way, and I think it's really helpful, he says this, or actually, he's uh, figuring out leisure, and he goes, one of the largest obstacles to true Sabbath keeping is leisure. Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify the time. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It is vacation, literally a vacating and evacuation. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us and demanding more from us than it ever gives. Again, as we think about Sabbath and rest, it's both disengagement and it's engagement. And for many of us, as we think about leisure or we think about unplugging or unwinding, it's only a kind of a disengagement that is a part of what we're looking for, but that kind of disengagement left alone never fulfills and never satisfies what we're looking for, what rest was meant to be or what it was meant to provide. In fact, the writers will go further, and as it's fascinating, some of the quotes I wanna give you are writers that were looking at what was going to happen to culture when the TV set arrived. So these guys are writing back in the 50s and the 60s talking about what was going to happen culturally that was going to happen post-TV is even more true, if not more stark, in a day and time in which we have little TVs on our devices that sit in our phones, right? The personal phone, and the, the iPhone, the ability that it has and all that it can do now in your pocket at any moment, at any time, not having to get all the way back to your living room and a TV set is all the more true. But notice what they say about technology and how it accelerates some of our tendencies with leisure. Notice what he says this. Aldous Huxley says, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance and as we would become a trivial culture. Having failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for destructions and pleasure, Huxley feared that what we love would ruin us. When rest is considered only disengagement, we end up engaging in a pattern that leaves us, like my neighbors, destroyed, exhausted, overwhelmed, consumed, and not rested at all. The entertainment and leisure has a place. I'm the first to tell you, I watch a little bit of TV almost every night. It helps me, un helps me undo my mind, but the problem is, I disengage on what I've been doing all day, but if I go for hours, then it, be, it moves beyond what's fruitful and what's helpful and what's purposeful. Because rest, Sabbath, is both an engagement and a disengagement. And for many of us, we get the disengagement and we step into leisure to stop thinking about all the things that we were managing and juggling, but it leads us into something that is never meant by itself to fulfill what rest was meant to be. In fact, many of us may not realize this, but to muse means to think or to ponder. So to amuse ourselves means literally to not think or to not ponder. What amusement can be in the book, uh, Amuse Ourselves to Death, the idea was we can get to a place because of distractions and pleasures that we can choose to not think and to not ponder until we become trivial, thoughtless, superficial, and unpurposeful. 
and there's no boundary and there's no check on it. It can go on endlessly forever until Netflix says, are you still watching? <laughs> yes, and I'm so offended still, right? So there's a place for leisure, but as we think about rest, there's a balance in what we're trying to build and what we're trying to calibrate. There's a place for leisure, there's a place for vacation, there's a place for disengagement, but it has to be alongside of a kind of engagement as well. I love the poet Mary Oliver, she says it this way, she says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Any couple who loves each other or any young couple, you see it at a restaurant, they're staring into each other's eyes, there's a connection between attention and devotion. And one of the things that we have to realize about Sabbath and rest is that there's a myth of multitasking. You and I cannot pay attention to too many things all at once. For 20 years of marriage, my wife and I cook most of the meals together. We partner in the kitchen. And one thing that ends up happening over and over again is we think at some point in time, we would love to put some toasted almonds on a salad. And so we, one of us says, I'll toast the almonds. We use timers, we use reminders, we use post-it notes, but whatever devices we use, we seem to not be able to multitask and prevent the almonds from burning. Every time we try. The number of times I've pulled burnt almonds out of the oven and rushed them into the backyard and, stint, and throw them out onto the grass or onto the patio to not stink up our home, I cannot count the number of times, but it's probably somewhere over 120 years of marriage, okay? So now we just buy toasted almonds, all right? What's the point? If I'm juggling multiple things, I cannot pay attention. I don't care how many of you think that you can multitask like the best of them, at some point in multitasking, it is by its very nature, meaning a division of attention, you cannot pay attention to the things that matter most. What rest and Sabbath is, is a disengagement of a kind so that your full faculties can be re-engaged in paying attention to the things that matter most. Buchanan goes and says it this way, thinking about and defining Sabbath for us. He says, Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual, physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the rest of God the things of God's nature and his presence that we miss in our busyness. Sabbath is a day set aside for feasting, resting, worship, and play. It is a gift from God. It's also an attitude, a perspective, an orientation of the heart, and such a heart can rest when the world around us is unrestful and swirling. It's funny, whenever we get into messages or sermons on heaven, one of the constant objections is, I don't wanna have an endless church service that goes on for all of eternity which of all of us church staff is just really insulting, right? You're like, are we gonna do this for like hours? Like that's gonna just kill me, okay? Uh, but I think similarly on the idea and topic of Sabbath and rest, the idea is like, is it like a Bible study for like a whole day? Like what's happening here? And that's why I love the quote from here from Buchanan because there is a sense in which I am trying to engage and pay attention to the Lord, to his nature, to his person, to our relationship but there's also a sense in which I'm trying to pay attention and even enjoy all the provision and all the blessings that he's put in my life. Buchanan talks about feasting, resting, worship, play. This past weekend, we were out at my in-law's lake house and had a whole day uh, just with the couples that are in our home group, and it was awesome, it was great, it was rich, it was great conversation. Our kids are at camp for two weeks right now, and so we are kidless, free as a bird, living a good life right now, okay? But it was just a great chance to connect with couples, have adult conversations, to be not interrupted every two minutes by some little person who has a thought or something that they wanna talk about, but to actually just get quality time with peers that are parenting together and walking through life, it was amazing. That part of what Sabbath and rest is, yes, is a, commun a communing and a paying attention to the Lord, but it's also an appreciation and enjoyment for all the things that he's created and he's put in our life. 
It's why God creates over six days in Genesis. And then on the seventh day, he's communing with the Trinity himself, with each other, but they're also enjoying that which they've created. There's a fully orbness of, of, of what we're enjoying and what we're paying attention to. And so the question becomes, if we begin to get a better sense of what rest and Sabbath is, that it's a kind of disengagement from all the things that I normally juggle, and then it's a kind of re-engagement in the kinds of things that matter most that I can't pay attention to in the same way when I'm juggling all these things. And the question is, how do we begin to build these rhythms in of rest and work in our life in a more healthy and balanced way? I'm gonna give you four basic ideas, four basic steps that if we begin to think about our upcoming week, our upcoming semester, it can begin to look different and we can begin to recalibrate some of our rhythms and begin to build some new patterns as we begin to wrap up the summer, step toward the fall. Four ideas, four steps of how do we begin to build rest in our life if we begin to understand that the first is this, that we stop. One of the first things that you and I have to do if we're going to disengage and begin to re-engage in a new way as we Sabbath and as we rest is we have to learn to stop. There's like this built-in momentum and inertia of juggling and managing life and responsibilities that it is actually so hard sometimes to stop, to put it down. One of the first things that you and I have to learn to do in the midst of life is that you and I have to learn to stop, to find ways, to find community that helps us as well, that we learn to stop because there's always going to be more. There's always gonna be another set of duties. There's always gonna be another person. There's always gonna be another uh, responsibility that can emerge from work or home. They can always in a sense, push us away from stopping. I love Buchanan. He says that we are dizzy with all of our busyness. We've become so disoriented, it almost puts us in a spin cycle that makes it even harder and harder to stop and to slow down, to be still and to know that he is God. I love the way Comer puts it here. He says it this way. He says, the solution to an overbusy life is not more time. It's to slow down and to simplify lives around what really matters. For some of us, as we wrap up summer, as we head toward the fall, it may not be just finding a day a week that we stop or moments in each day that we stop, but it may also be looking at and taking stock at the things that are coming at us in the fall to say, am I choosing and saying yes to too many things? Am I putting so many things in the course of my day and that I'm gonna have to juggle that's going to make it even harder to stop? That stopping process is something we have to do on a daily basis, it's something we have to do even more significantly on a weekly basis, but also even if we zoom out and we look at a semester at a time, you and I have to begin to think critically about are we over committing ourselves to things in ways that makes us really difficult to stop, to be the kind of son and daughter, to be the kind of husband or spouse, to be the kind of parent that we want to be because of the things that we're saying yes to that we feel like we don't have options for, but we do, we do. Second would be this, and it kind of related to stop. Don't assume that you can just gloss over it, but I wanna say it. It's interesting that as the, uh, in the Jewish calendar, as they celebrated Sabbath, Sabbath started on an evening. Why? Because they recognized it was going to be impossible to spiritually rest and pay attention if they were physically exhausted. Physical rest is almost a foundational piece upon which we build spiritual rest on top of. But even more so, sleep represents something if we think about it more significantly. I love it, Buchanan says it this way, that sleep at its very nature is a position of vulnerability, of defensivelessness and of dependency that we do well in under one of two conditions, either utter exhaustion or complete confidence. That for some of us, we finally hit the pillow and we've been driving, driving, driving and we fall asleep, 
because we are utterly at the end of our rope and we're just exhausted and worn out and there's no fighting against sleep like a wave crashing over us. For some of us, sleep is a conscious choice that we're willing to lean into because we recognize we don't have to keep driving and driving and driving, that God has things under control and I don't have to hold everything all the time. That I can sleep because he's still awake and he has it. That even when I'm not pushing and pulling and managing and strategizing, he's still working even when I'm not conscious, awake, and have my hands on the wheel. That sleep almost becomes a clue for our ability and a symptom of our willingness to stop. And when you and I stop, all of a sudden we begin to see the world a little bit differently. The perspective that we lose because of busyness that when we rest, we gain perspective. We begin to see again that God is sovereign and that we are dispensable. I love the way Buchanan says it this way when he says that a good definition of Sabbath is this. It's imitating God so that we stop trying to be God. We mirror divine behavior only to freshly discover that our human limitations, uh, that our Sabbath keeping involves a recognition of our own weakness and smallness, that we are made from dust, that we hold our treasure, treasure in clay jars, and that without proper care, we break. That there's something in the willingness to imitate a pattern that God has provided, that in that imitation of what he did, we begin to realize we are not him. Busyness is a lie that fuels us and spins us and drives us as if we think that we are God. Rest is a pattern that begins to teach us and reteach us and recalibrate us to realize we are not God by doing the very thing that he did, even though he wasn't weary. When our kids were a lot younger, one of the things that we would often do because they didn't want to fall asleep, they didn't want to miss out on whatever was happening, we would often lay down alongside of them to imitate sleep to make it seem attractive as if nothing was gonna be missed if they would just fall asleep as well. But often in those raising of young kids at those, those, those times, it was very physically exhausting. And what would often happen is one parent would lay down alongside of the child to imitate sleep. Eventually they're sound asleep as well. So like two hours go by and I'm, where is my wife? Like, where's Marcy, where'd she go? She's just out cold right, like, right down next to uh, alongside of our youngest. Why? Because in the imitating of a pattern, she began to realize in that imitation that she was exhausted as well, and it was game over. There's something in imitation that teaches us something that we don't realize unless we stop and are willing to imitate. Rest does that. It teaches us that we are finite, that we're weary, that we're limited, and that we're not sovereign. But there is one who is infinite, unweary, sovereign, and always in control. And our ability and our willingness to follow through and to rest teaches us that, that we are not sovereign and that he is. Thirdly, for you and I to rest, that's all good and all, but there's two things that are often going on in our heads that if we don't deal with them and address them, we have no chance. And they're the voices of guilt and the voices of anxiety. That in the midst of talking to you guys this morning about rest, the reality is it's really hard because these two voices are in our head and we often don't know how to name them or identify them even though we're not schizophrenic, all right? But they're there all the time, okay? I don't care what Enneagram style you are. I don't care what personality style you are. One of them is probably often in your head, especially as you approach and as you think about rest. Buchanan says it this way, thinking about their voices, and he says this, and I love it. It's probably one of my favorite quotes in the book. He says this, the lie that taskmasters want you to swallow is that you cannot rest until your work's all done. Your email inbox is zero. Your list is all checked off. Everything that you want to do is done, and it's done better than you currently are doing it. You got better at it. 
But the trust is, the faith is this, that the work's never done. It's never done quite right. It's always more than you can finish and less than you hope for. And Sabbath is a stop work order right in the middle of the work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break that we're allotted at the tail end of completing all of our obligations. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we could. Sabbath and rest are incredibly hard as guilt and anxiety constantly drive us and constantly spin us. Again, think about Sabbath as the nation of Israel received it. Hundreds of years in Egypt as slaves in which they had taskmasters that were driving them. Though they were far from the taskmasters in their presence, their voices were still driving so much of their activity. Guilt and anxiety anxiety say very different things to us. Guilt says you've never done enough. Why could you think that you could rest when you haven't finished what you thought you were supposed to do? Guilt says it's not done, you haven't done enough, that you didn't do it well enough, so why would you think that you can rest? You haven't earned it. You haven't earned it at all. So just keep driving and then one day you can get there. Anxiety comes at you from the other end of the spectrum. It says, why do you think you can rest? Because if you rest, then it's all gonna fall apart. If you rest, then what's gonna happen if you're not pushing and pulling? Then the whole deal that you've been working on falls straight off a cliff and everything you've been working towards is in jeopardy if you stop and if you rest. Guilt and anxiety come at us in very different ways. And for each of us, usually that we don't get hit by both of them necessarily, but we often get hit by at least one of them. And if you can't recognize the voices of guilt and anxiety that are often in your heart or in your mind, you have no chance to stop and to slow down. What Sabbath is, is a stop work order right in the middle of all the work that's not done, that's not done the way that you wanted it to be done. And you can stop and you can rest because God said you could and you need to. One of the things I loved about high school and college is that all of life is built off of semesters. And so some of you guys that are students that are about to be back in school and something's coming in two weeks that's known as syllabus shock in which your whole semester is defined for you and your life is over, okay? Um, but the beauty for y'all is that then the end of the semester comes and you finish it all and then there's this break in which there's nothing on top of you. There's no cloud hanging over you. But the moment that you graduate and you step out of college into the real world, it never happens ever again. (laughs) All of work is an endless onslaught, building set of duties and responsibilities that there's always something you could be doing. Of learning and raising kids now at this point in time, there's always something I could be teaching my kid. There's always something I could be helping them experience or grow or learn. There's never a sense of which I'm done. Ministry, church, the ways that we have the opportunity to serve, things that we can all do here as a part of the local body. There's always a need. There's always an opportunity. There's always a burden. There's always a space to step into, to minister. There's never not an opportunity. For those of us that are homeowners that are not living in apartment complexes, there's always a project. There's always a honeydew. There's always something that's broken that needs fixing or improved. Like there's no point in life, it seems like at this point in time, post-college, that There's a sense of feeling finished or done. Looking at the uh, families that are ahead of me that have high school kids, we have an incoming eighth grader now, an incoming fifth grader, and I'm looking at the families that are with kids in high school and it looks just busier and busier and it's just getting faster and faster and there's more and more and more and it's faster and faster and it keeps coming from more and more angles and it never seems to stop, but at some point your kids leave college and I'm really curious what that's like. Maybe that's when you rest, I don't know. 
but it seems like post-college, there's never a syllabus that you finish, that you close life on, and it feels done. It just keeps building. And so if you and I can't learn to rest, we're going to be in trouble. We have to learn to build the rhythms of work and rest in order to see the Lord, in order to be healthy, in order to enjoy what we've been tasked to do, in order to be fresh and to be sharp. That it's a mandate and it's a command for our provision and our protection to find an abundance in life as God's designed it and rest is something that he's invited us into. Our worship team is gonna come back up this morning as we wrap up to give us a little bit of a chance to process, man, why, why is rest so hard for me? Why is it so hard to step into it? Why is it so hard to experience it? Uh, one of the things that's great about community and great about kind of walking life out is often this rhythm and this discussion of rhythms of work and rest is hard to see in and of our own selves. And so family and community are often places and people to help us kind of go, hey, something's off in the way that we navigate that. But we want, what we wanna do as we wrap up this morning is we wanna give you some time and opportunity to come before the Lord and just to process to say, why is rest so hard for me sometimes? Am I disengaging in the wrong ways? Am I engaging on the wrong things? How is it I navigate this and rest just continues to feel elusive and hard to experience and hard to define? I wanna give you some time to process with the Lord even as you think about summer and as you wrestle with the fall that's coming to begin to rebuild rhythms and to begin to make new decisions to build some new convictions in. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you as we think about your reign in our life that you are a good king that you want what's best for us, that you've given us work, you've given us responsibility as a commission that is glorious, that is exalted, that is honorable, that is purposeful, but that alongside of it, you've also given us the gift of rest, to Sabbath, to disengage with the things that we juggle and that we manage on a daily basis, to stop, to enjoy you, to enjoy the things you've put in our lives, the blessings that you've extended to us, to eventually then return back to work sharp, fresh, purposeful with vision and with passion. For many of us, we can struggle to stop. For many of us, we can stop and choose things that aren't restful, sometimes even sinful. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us conviction, that you would give us vision in the midst of our own lives as to what's off and why do we struggle in these spaces? Why is it not what we want it to be? I pray that you give us a clear conviction, that you give us courage to begin to rebuild different patterns and different rhythms and even be vulnerable and open and honest with family, with friends that can look into our rhythms of work and rest to speak into it with boldness, with courage, conviction. Lord, we love you. We desperately ask for these things through your son and by your spirit, we pray, amen.